Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. Friends, we are so excited for today's case discussion and very honored to invite to join us our colleagues and fellows from the Massachusetts General Hospital Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. With us today, we have Drs. Kamar Brown, Rachel Frank, and Daniel Papillas. So guys, welcome to the show. Tell the audience who you are. Hi, I'm Rachel Frank. I'm a second-year cardiovascular medicine fellow at Mass General Hospital. I did my undergrad and medical school training at University of Pittsburgh before coming to MGH for residency and stayed for fellowship. Outside of the hospital, I'm interested in cooking and running. Hi, I'm Kamar Brown. I did my medical school training at Stony Brook School of Medicine, residency at Mount Sinai, currently one of the third-year cardiovascular fellows at MGH. Clinically, I'm interested in heart failure as well as critical care. And as a basic scientist, my research focuses on maladaptation of cardiomyocytes and non-myocytes in various forms of cardiomyopathy. I spend most of my time outside of medicine playing a dinosaur and chasing around my jubilant three-year-old son. Hi, everyone. I'm Danny Pippolis. I'm one of the second-year fellows at Mass General. I'm interested in going into EP after my general fellowship. I did my medical school at Vanderbilt and a residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And outside of medicine, I like to spend time with my wife, Alexandra, who's also a cardiology fellow. I like to ride my Peloton bike, maybe a little bit too much, uh, and I enjoy cooking. Kamar, I'll have to lend you. I have two dinosaur costumes, so just in case you need any extras, I do have two dinosaur costumes. That sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) I'd also like to shout out to Dr. Praveen Ranganath, who provided some of the reformatted images for this case. He's one of the imaging fellows at MGH, so I just got to get a shout out there to him as well. Team, it's such a pleasure to meet all of you, Rachel, Danny, Kamar. Ahmed and I just landed in Boston, a mecca of cardiology. One of the first things that we want to do is discuss cardiology, but we need an awesome place to do that. So, guys, where can you take us to discuss this morning's case? So, Karen, imagine that we're on the Charles River Esplanade, floating on a luxurious sailboat drinking large Dunkin' Donuts iced coffees, and having pastries from the North End's modern pastry. 
What a gorgeous way to kick off a beautiful autumn Sunday morning. We're in. We are here on our boat, enjoying the waves. Coffee's in hand, very important. But as we do so, tell us about your case. Thanks so much again for having us here on your podcast. I am so excited to share with you a case I saw last April that sprawls the last five months and covers so many broad aspects of cardiovascular disease. Our patient is a 30-year-old woman with no significant past medical history other than anxiety, who presented during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic initial surge in Boston in early April of 2020. Her presenting symptoms were one week of fatigue, weakness, shortness of breath, anxiety, and three days of intermittent left-sided chest pain and pressure radiating down her left arm. These symptoms occurred at rest as frequently as every two to three hours, and lasted about 10 to 15 minutes, all of which self-resolved. She initially presented to an outside hospital emergency department the night before admission and was discharged and told that her symptoms were consistent with anxiety. The following day, however, she had severe symptoms lasting four hours, and so she called EMS and was eventually transferred to Mass General Hospital due to a rising troponin. She was loaded with aspirin, given a statin, and started on a heparin drip prior to transfer. As a background, she had several years of anxiety and intermittent fatigue and had been started on sertraline with minimal effect. She works a pretty active job as a house cleaner, but had been out of work due to the COVID-19 pandemic. More recently, of note, she had also had significant psychosocial stressors at home Upon further history, she denied fever, chills, cough, sore throat, runny nose, nausea, vomiting, anosmia, dysgeusia, diarrhea, abdominal pain, dysuria, leg swelling, weight changes, known sick contacts, or recent travel. Interestingly, regarding her social history, she was born outside the United States and moved here in the 2000s. Growing up, she had very minimal medical care and never went to a hospital as a baby. She currently lives with her eight-year-old son and had an uncomplicated pregnancy. She does not drink any alcohol or use any other recreational substances. She's a never smoker. She's a practitioner of the Jehovah's Witness faith. Her family history is only remarkable for a paternal grandfather with an MI in his 90s, a maternal grandmother with hypothyroidism. There is no family history of premature CAD, diabetes, or hypertension. Her home medications included sertraline 50 milligrams daily, lorazepam 0.5 milligrams BID for anxiety, and fluticasone nasal spray. Rachel, there was such a descriptive history that really helps contextualize who this patient is. But as a young woman with a history of anxiety, I'm uh, just a little bit struck that on her first emergency department visit, her diagnosis of anxiety was reinforced. It's unclear to us the nature of the diagnostic evaluation that she received in that initial ED visit. And we know from a lot of work that's been done by leaders in women's cardiovascular health or women's health in general, uh, we've had on the podcast, Drs. Leslie Cho, Dr. Nanette Wenger, Dr. Martha Galati, that women are less likely to be taken seriously for their complaints. Women are less likely to get appropriate diagnostic evaluation. Once diagnosed with say cardiovascular disease, they're less likely to get invasive studies and invasive therapeutics, and they're less likely to get guideline-directed medical care. 
even things that we should be good at, like statins, antihypertensive therapies, uh, anticoagulation, antiplatelets, etc. And so, you know, I just wonder how much of an evaluation that initial ED did, and I'm just glad that she made it to your care. Uh, one question I may ask, you said she has an eight-year-old child, um, and just thinking about uh, young women who present with what may be cardiovascular complaints like chest pain, is doing anything about her obstetric history. I learned about uh, the importance of the obstetric history from one of our earlier cases, but you know things like if she had any adverse pregnancy outcomes, if she's G1P1, for instance, was there a history of preeclampsia or early premature delivery or anything like that? Because that'll also be a very relevant risk factor in a young woman. That's a great question. As far as we know, and as far as she was able to describe to us, her pregnancy was her only pregnancy that she had. It was uncomplicated. There was no concern for preeclampsia or eclampsia, and the delivery was uh, routine. Thanks, Rachel. You know, just to add to what Amit was saying, Rachel, that was such a rich history that you provided us. And I'm trying to put myself in the position of that initial ED provider that was evaluating this patient, this 30-year-old female that's coming in with fatigue, weakness, shortness of breath, reporting that she has increased psychosocial stressors, has a reported history of anxiety, but then also noting this left-sided chest discomfort. And when I think about anxiety and making that diagnosis in the emergency department, or even early in an admission in the medicine floor, especially in the context of chest discomfort, I always go back to how was this initial diagnosis of anxiety made to the point that Amit was making and Rachel, you were leading at in that what was the workup that was involved? How thorough was that workup? What is this patient's prior anxiety presented as? Because anxiety is, as we all know, is a continuum. There's ups and downs. There's flares. Has this Is this presenting like a typical uh, anxiety flare, if you may? for her? Or is this something different? And then when someone reports that there's chest discomfort associated with it, especially reading to the left arm, really, really being thorough about can we correlate this with anxiety or is there something uh, occurring that's cardiovascular in nature, pulmonary in nature, and so forth. And I'm very much harping on how this diagnosis of anxiety was made and whether that uh, diagnosis also fits with her underlying presentation, which surely sounds like a true anginal episode. This is great, guys. I think when she first got to MGH, I'm sure all these thoughts were going through the the first person who evaluated her. But I think when I'm hearing this, she has features of typical chest discomfort, and she has features of atypical chest discomfort. So as you guys are saying, taking a really detailed history, making sure to tease out what's different now, what the typical parts of her presentation are, what the atypical parts of her presentation are, and really targeting a workup to figure out why she might be having this, I think will be important. We know non-atherosclerotic causes of, of chest pain are more likely in this young population than atherosclerotic causes. And as you've mentioned, Amit, it's important to make sure that she's not pregnant and that there's nothing else going on in the background. Thanks, Danny. So why don't we move on to the physical exam? And Rachel, what else did you guys find out when she arrived? So when she arrived at Mass General, she was initially tachycardic to 105 beats per minute. The rest of her vitals were normal. Blood pressure of 113 over 65. Her temperature was 97.8 with a respiratory rate of 16. And her pulse oximeter reading was 98% on room air. Of note, her BMI was elevated at 30. 
Her cardiopulmonary, vascular, musculoskeletal, and neurologic exams were normal without evidence of heart failure or volume overload. An ECG was obtained and showed submillimeter horizontal ST depressions and lead to V5, V6, and downsloping ST depressions with T-wave inversions and lead AVL. Broad laboratory workup was sent, and her creatinine, LFTs, CBC, lactate, ferritin, LDH, ESR, and CRP were all normal, with a COVID-19 nasal PCR that was negative. Her hemoglobin A1C was 5%, with an LDL of 67. Notably, her cardiac labs showed an elevated NT proBNP to 1.5,000. She also had a elevated high sensitivity troponin of 360. That subsequently downtrended on repeat to 349. Interestingly, her TSH was depressed at 0.02 with a free T4 that was elevated to 5.1. At time of initial cardiovascular evaluation by the cardiology consult team, she was symptom-free. So at this time, there were many thoughts going through our minds in terms of her initial workup and what the next best diagnostic test of choice would be. So I'd love to turn it over to Danny to talk a little bit about the differential. Well, this is great, Rachel. Thank you. And I think we can all probably think of a number of diagnoses that may be going on. Before we had the troponin and the NT-proBNP, I think it was hard to really zero in and focus on cardiovascular causes for her symptoms. But as I was kind of alluding to before, non-atherosclerotic causes are more common in this population than atherosclerotic causes. So things that are running through my mind are spontaneous coronary artery dissection, maybe something like a myopericarditis, uh, pulmonary embolism, uh, dissection of her aorta, or things like that. So I'd want to be looking at blood pressures in all of her extremities. I'd want to be looking for signs of other signs of myopericarditis. I'd want to make sure she's not pregnant and doesn't have something like a peripartum cardiomyopathy. And then other things I think about in young populations like this with typical symptoms uh, are things like anomalous coronaries or even more rare diagnoses. And I think one thing that's worth noting is the timing of her initial presentation in regards to the initial surge in Boston. Being on the consult service when she came into the hospital, I have to say that COVID myocarditis was very high on our differential We were seeing a tremendous surge of cases in Boston at that time. Majority of the patients that were coming into our emergency department were, in fact, there for COVID-19. And it also created a lens with which we were viewing pretty much every patient presentation. This patient happened to live in a neighborhood that was being disproportionately affected by COVID-19, and it really took us feeling very confident in our testing that the COVID test was negative before we moved on to other diagnoses, just because this was something that we were seeing not infrequently with patients with COVID-19 was myocardial injury, chest discomfort, and nonspecific ECG changes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very important to add. And as you'll hear, cultural considerations are quite important here as well. Our patient had limited access to care until she moved to the U.S., as Rachel pointed out in her presentation, and never really saw uh, an MD in childhood. This has implications later in the case, so keep that in mind uh, as we move forward. And also, I must point out that the word angina in her native language translates in English as fatigue and anxiety, which we learn later becomes very important as well. 
and creates a, a way to repeatedly dismiss her symptoms if proper history taking is overlooked. Uh, so in addition to the fallibility of anchoring on the anxiety, we must also make note that her cultural background is a very important uh, part of her, her history and is a prime example of how errors in translation can often result in loss of nuance. You know, guys, I'm so glad uh, and thankful that you guys are contextualizing where she is medically within the pandemic, within her her own social and cultural context, and just thinking how we were approaching patients and really are still approaching patients, but at least earlier in the early days when we were learning about this, they, there was obviously a direct impact uh, and a very real impact on people who got COVID, but there was also a very real impact for the bystander patients, right? Just thinking about access to care, right? It was harder to get into a clinic. There's delays in diagnosis. Even something as simple as getting an echocardiogram was more challenging because of all the restrictions and not wanting to bring the full echo machine into patients' rooms. And it definitely colored, like uh, Rachel, you're saying, our perception of the differential diagnosis. And I, I remember one patient in particular who came in with a very profound fulminant myocarditis who actually ended up having you know, our typical lymphocytic myocarditis that anyone can get from sort of an idiopathic, probably infectious trigger. But we ended up testing that patient, I think, uh, three or four times because we were so sure that, you know, would have had COVID. So, and then we also had patients who delayed seeking medical care. I personally have had a patient and we've had other patients even on the series who presented so late after essentially a missed MI that they developed uh, mechanical complications of an MI. So, you know, definitely is a real impact on patients who get COVID, and we see the stats on that all the time. But just uh, below the tip of that iceberg, there's this whole impact on on the entire healthcare system as a whole. You know, Ahmed, that's such a good point. And as we all know, and not to belabor the point, COVID really has affected our clinical reasoning. But in this circumstance, we have a young patient, we have someone that reports a history of anxiety, we have COVID, and we're trying to explain chest pain in all those contexts. And then there's this wrench. There's these thyroid tests. And so I'm really wondering how you guys pieced all that information together and how you kind of interpreted the thyroid test there. Rachel, would you want to lead us through how you guys were thinking through those results? Absolutely. And I distinctly remember seeing her thyroid function test uh, results pop up in Epic and contacting the primary team to ask them if they had additional thoughts while I was formulating my own, certainly concerning for a component of hyperthyroidism that could be potentially driving her presentation. But the other question we had running through our mind is, was there some sort of unifying diagnosis with a perhaps viral infection leading to both a thyroiditis and a myocarditis? Or in fact, was the hyperthyroidism contributing to increased myocardial oxygen demand and leading to more of a type 2 and STEMI? Of course, this is before we had additional diagnostic testing. You know, that's great, Rachel. And just going back to the exam, and it's not a perfect marker, but I, I believe you mentioned there was no tenderness on her thyroid when we would think potentially of a painful thyroiditis after a viral process. But we can certainly have uh, non-painful thyroiditis. It can be occurring in the setting of postpartum or silence. And we still haven't evaluated for whether the patient has an underlying process like Graves' disease or toxic adenoma or toxic multinodular goiter, you know, the, the maybe her anxiety diagnosis was always related to thyroid. So I think there's a lot of things playing here. And I'm really interested to hear what happened next. 
Great. So let's dive back into the case and discuss the next steps in workup. And we'll come back to her kind of thyroid ultrasound because she definitely got further thyroid evaluation too. But as is usually the case, so we went with the TTE as the next test of choice. And this showed a preserved left ventricular ejection fraction of 58%, but a very subtle wall motion abnormality in the anterolateral wall. She also had mild mitral tenting, but no significant mitral regurgitation. And noted on the short axis views was a large RCA arising from the right coronary cusp. At this point, she was symptom-free and her troponin had peaked, but we were left without a clear diagnosis. Uh, What we had was a preserved ejection fraction and regional wall motion abnormalities on our echo. And so things like focal myocarditis were still going through the mines, but I think we really still needed an anatomic assessment of her coronary tree. The team elected to proceed with a coronary CT, given that she was so young and non-atherosclerotic causes were more likely cause of her symptoms. So she underwent a coronary CTA, and this showed no coronary artery disease, but demonstrated an anomalous left main coronary artery arising from the main pulmonary artery with evidence of left to right shunting from the left main into the PA. She had diffusely dilated coronary arteries with extensive coronary and bronchial collateralization. And furthermore, the anterior wall was hypokinetic on the CT, consistent with ischemia, thought to be due to myocardial steel phenomenon. This clinched the diagnosis of Alcapa, which at first glance can be easily confused with the species of South American mammal that looks like a llama, but is in fact not related at all to an alpaca. As an aside, I've never seen or met an alpaca, but they look very cute, so it's definitely on my bucket list to meet and pet an alpaca. They're pretty adorable, and I think of the two, I'd definitely rather have an alpaca than an alcapa. That being said, I think at this point, people are saying, you know, this is a rare diagnosis. What is Alcapa and what do we need to know about it to be able to best take care of this patient? So as Danny said, this is a very rare diagnosis, especially to present in adulthood. So I want to take you through a little bit. What is anomalous left coronary artery origin from the PA or Alcapa? So it occurs in fewer than one in 300,000 live births. Most of the time, in the absence of surgical intervention, children die early in infancy. The usual presentation in infants is inconsolable crying, poor feeding, rapid breathing, or symptoms of significant distress. Children often progress to develop congestive heart failure due to myocardial ischemia. A subset of children present after infancy with ischemic mitral regurgitation with or without other features of myocardial ischemia. Very rare natural survivors present with MI, ischemic MR, and LV failure and survived into childhood or even into adulthood. So Kamar, why would someone develop Alcapa? Can you explain how this happens? Yeah, so this is uh, embryologically quite interesting, right? The development of the anomalous coronary to the pulmonary artery um, is quite complex from 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 an embryological standpoint. But the bottom line is that the anatomical coronary arteries heavily depend on the proliferation and also the migration of cells that originate in an area outside of the heart called the sinus spinosus. And these cells are destined to become endothelial cells, vascular smooth muscle cells, as well as fibroblasts. In a signal-dependent fashion, migration heavily relies on the expression of growth factors like FGF2, PDGF, and VEGF. And in this milieu, cells find their way to the aorta and penetrate the wall to create the, the coronary ostia. 
Fascinatingly, anomalous coronary arteries that originate from the aorta or anomalous coronary arteries that originate from the pulmonary artery have a common defect, and that is the cells of the capillary plexus surrounding the aorta and pulmonary artery fail to reach and or penetrate into the normal sites of the the developing aorta. And and that's a pretty common thing that you see in all types of coronary um, anomalies. So now that we know how the arteries end up in the wrong place, how does this actually cause disease? Rachel, what's the pathology associated with anomalous coronary artery from the pulmonary artery? Great question, Kamar. The pathophysiology of this disorder relates to the pressure difference between the systemic and pulmonary arteries and the reliance on the development of adequate collateral coronary circulation. There are four described hemodynamic consequences. The first hemodynamic consequence occurs in fetal circulation and in neonates, and this can be understood in the context of elevated pulmonary artery pressures. In this situation, oxygenated blood from the pulmonary circulation supplies the left coronary artery territory with no resulting myocardial ischemia due to the pressure differential there. After birth occurs, as we all know, the pulmonary artery pressures begin to fall with the pulmonary artery vascular resistance dropping as well. As a result, there's a reversal of flow from the left coronary artery, which results in a steel phenomenon. If collateralization from the right coronary artery or bronchial circulation are inadequate, you will see hypoperfusion and myocardial ischemia develop in the left coronary territory. This is often the time that we see infants become significantly symptomatic. As you can imagine, ischemic pain from myocardial ischemia is very uncomfortable, and this may manifest, as we mentioned previously, as inconsolable crying. As the patient grows, hopefully there's development of adequate collateralization between the two coronary circulations, and this would result in better myocardial perfusion and improved myocardial function. Over time and into adulthood, in the setting of normal pulmonary artery pressures, the left coronary circulation that is now supplied by the right coronary artery can actually serve as a left-to-right shunt with blood flowing back into the pulmonary artery from the anomalous left main. As mentioned earlier, the first two stages explain the pediatric phenotype that we see, with the last two found in later childhood or adult presentations. Interestingly, based on the available case series, only about 5% of patients with ALKAPA go unrepaired and survived by natural intracoronary collateral flow as in our case. These patients may present with myocardial ischemia and angina, ischemic MR, a palpable left ventricular aneurysm from long-standing ischemia, ventricular arrhythmias, and sudden cardiac death. To the acutely trained ear, there may be a continuous flow brewing over the anterior wall from the right to left coronary circulation. But now that we've identified ALKAPA, the question remained what to do about it. This is simply amazing. I think we're on the Charles River right now, and I almost tipped over just from excitement over this diagnosis and just how it was all made. I just want to emphasize how rare this is. You know, we'll, we'll read about it as cardiovascular fellows in our textbook, but rarely, rarely will we see it. 
and coming upon this diagnosis, it takes incredible acumen. And it was, uh, I want to just give kudos to all of you for making this diagnosis. And I'm really excited to hear about what happens next. But if I'm understanding the physiology right, I just want to make sure I have it because this is not something that I personally come across. You know, I asked my wife who's a neonatology fellow, and she herself also says this is not something she's seen. So again, emphasizing the rarity of this diagnosis. But it seems that Initially, in the neonatal circulation in the first month of life, when we have physiologic pulmonary hypertension, we maintain integrated blood flow through the left coronary. And then it seems as that physiologic pulmonary hypertension, the pulmonary vascular resistance reduces, then we no longer have the same flow through that left coronary, and then we can actually have reversal of flow, and we have deoxygenated blood then going down the left coronary. And much of whether we will eventually have myocardial ischemia and if a patient progresses to adulthood is dependent on collateral circulation. Do I have that right? Yeah, Karen, I think that was a great explanation. And just thinking about the in utero supply, there really isn't much of a negative feedback in terms of why or how this would develop, right? Because in utero, the blood in the PA and the blood in the aorta are very similar, right? They're both oxygenated high pressure systems. The myocytes don't give a darn if they're getting blood supply from the PA or from the aorta because they're both high pressure and oxygenated. However, after delivery, the lungs get aerated, you lose the hypoxic vasoconstriction, and it becomes a low pressure system. But furthermore, you lose the placental supply of oxygenated blood. And so now the PA is low pressure deoxygenated, whereas the aorta maintains this high pressure oxygenated supply. And so, you know, in Alcapa, the left main, the entire part of the heart that's getting supplied for the left main, which really is the majority of the heart, is now getting perfused by a low pressure deoxygenated supply from the PA. And you can imagine, as you said, that the only supply of high pressure oxygen blood at that point for the left main territory is going to come from the RCA. So on one extreme, you can have a patient who hasn't developed much of a collateral blood supply. And so the left main territory is going to be ischemic. And if they don't have much of a blood supply, you'll have symptoms in early infancy. And Rachel, you said these babies in the first few weeks of life will present with irritability, poor feeding, tachycardia, tachypnea. And I'm just trying to think back to what my son was like when he was four weeks old. And he was quite irritable. He was difficult to feed. And compared to what I was used to, he was tachypnic and tachycardic. So hats off to you know the pediatricians and the NICU folks who you know, define these and diagnose these babies. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you develop robust collateralization, that left main territory can get pretty good oxygenated blood, high pressure system from the RCA coming from the aorta. And you can have a delayed diagnosis well into adulthood like this patient. So with that in mind, what did you guys do next? Because even even if this patient has robust collateral supply, she's symptomatic and still can be at risk for ischemic cardiomyopathy and sudden cardiac death. Yeah, those are excellent points. So as Ahmed pointed out, this is something that's usually corrected in infancy and oftentimes have very substantial consequences later on in life. So in infancy, surgical correction is a treatment of choice with very good outcomes. Patients typically undergo translocation, which just means detachment and then reimplantation of the coronary onto the aorta or creating a baffle from the abnormal location to the aorta, and that's the Takuchi repair. A translocation is typically done for infants and neonates as coronary arteries are very pliable and in close proximity at this age. 
while interposition graphs is done for adults as coronaries, as you, you might imagine, are less mobile in adulthood. Patients are then monitored for development of arrhythmias, assessed with exercise testing, and then treated with beta blockers and ACE inhibitors for concomitant LV dysfunction. Let's get back into the case to learn about how patients are specifically managed. So our patients' main symptoms improved with nitrates and beta blockers. A thyroid ultrasound showed patchy heterogeneity consistent with thyroiditis, and endocrinology, as you may already presume, was highly involved in, in this case. Ultimately, her presentation was attributed to steel phenomenon related to hyperthyroidism and uh, myocardial demand, with possible contributions from social stressors as well. She was discharged on medical therapy and referred to cardiac surgery for correction given the presence of ischemia as well as LV dysfunction. It's fascinating. So, you know, essentially what you're saying is she has uh, probably like a two-hit phenomenon. You know, this is somebody who's got Alcapa but has such a robust collateral supply. And I'm looking at these cath images, definitely worth for everyone to take a look on, on the website. But she's got such a robust collateral supply that she was okay without symptoms for a while. But then with this additional metabolic cardiovascular demand of hyperthyroidism, now she's got exertional symptoms on top of that. So a really awesome pickup. You know, again, I'm at great points. And so we now have this patient discharged home, but still a large part of her therapy to be determined as specifically regarding her cardiac surgery. And she has multiple considerations. So Danny, can you walk us through what happened? Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. This case is already so fascinating, and there's already so many people involved and so much to consider. But it also really exemplifies why it's important to have an amazing interdisciplinary team of adult congenital cardiologists and cardiac surgeons who are well-versed in these disease processes. And let me also just mention that the ACC AHA guidelines for management of Alcapa actually state that in patients with this condition, reconstruction of a dual coronary artery supply should be performed. And that's class one level evidence of C. When our patient ultimately saw cardiac surgery, it was clear that the goals of surgical repair for her included not only symptom relief, but for preservation of LV function and a survival benefit. So there were two main operative corrections that were considered in her case. The first was, as Kamar mentioned, to perform a transposition of the left main from the pulmonary artery to the aorta or to place an interposition graft, redirecting blood flow from the aorta to the left main. The second option was to oversew or ligate the left main and place a bypass graft to the left anterior descending artery using a vein graft or lima. And we'll come back to this in just a second. Now, because of several anticipated technical challenges, the final decision was to be made in the operating room. Ultimately, the surgeons were planning to perform the first operation, which was the transposition of the left main. But based on the cardiac CT, it was felt that her left main coronary artery was surrounded by significant collaterals. This would make hemostasis challenging and lead to significant risk of hemorrhage. In her particular case, she's a Jehovah's Witness, and given that blood transfusions were not within her goals and wishes, the intra-op risk of bleeding was considered to be very high. So if she had a lot of collaterals around the origin of her left main as anticipated, the surgeons were worried that they would be unable to perform the transposition. But like if they were to proceed with ligation of the left main and placing a bypass graft, the ligation itself would help improve coronary blood flow by reducing reflux and coronary steel via left to right shunting through the pulmonary artery. So then for bypass options, a vein graft would likely be the better bypass conduit because the presence of valves would provide less backwards pressure head 
and there would be less competitive flow down the graft than with a lima. And going into the operation, the surgeons warned that if they did need to place a bypass graft, her graft might ultimately fail. However, this may not cause significant ischemia in the territory supplied by the bypass graft, because not only would the ligation help reduce reflux into the pulmonary artery and preserve circulation into the left-sided circulation, but she still has collaterals from the right coronary artery that supply that territory. So she was taken to the operating room, and intraoperatively, as predicted, there were extensive right-to-left and bronchial collaterals all across the right ventricular free wall and surrounding the pulmonary artery and left main origin. The surgeons ultimately ligated the left main at its origin from the pulmonary artery to reduce the left-to-right shunting and bypass the left anterior descending with a saphenous vein graft. Danny, that really is a thoughtful discussion that you just described there. And I'm trying to make sure I'm wrapping my head around this correctly, but it seems like there were some primary considerations here. First of all, with transposition of the left main back to the aorta, we would have had possibly a lot of bleeding, especially since there were a lot of collaterals on that area. So that was foregone. But next, the other consideration was because she had a lot of collaterals from the RCA and the right coronary system, she was supplying this area well that was supplied by the left coronary system. So when deciding whether to graft that area, the decision was made to pursue an SVG, knowing that even if this closed off, she had a lot of collaterals to that area. And then also, when considering the SVG versus the Lima, we didn't want to introduce a Lima because then there could be competitive flow from that area, leading to the same syndrome that was going on previously where there was coronary steel. So it seems like there were multiple considerations. It was a very thoughtful process, and the best options were presented to the patient that met her goals of care. So Danny, what happened next? So she was seen in follow-up a month later and was doing quite well. She did have some sternal pain with deep inspiration at the site of her incision, uh, but that had subsided and was improving over the subsequent weeks. Then, a few months later, she attempted to return to walking, which she had not done since her surgery. When she was walking, she did note some fatigue and felt her heart beating quite quickly. She stopped every five minutes, but was able to walk for approximately 30 to 45 minutes. However, several hours following this effort, she developed recurrent palpitations and slow-onset chest pain, which became severe and was associated with radiation down her left arm. She called EMS and was taken to MGH. EKG demonstrated sinus rhythm with one millimeter ST segment elevation in lead three and deep T-wave inversions in leads one and AVL with one millimeter ST depressions and sub-millimeter ST depressions in V4 through V6. Labs revealed a high sensitivity troponin, initially 62, but rose to 711 on subsequent checks. She was started on medical therapy for NSTEMI with aspirin, heparin, and a statin, and a repeat transthoracic echocardiogram demonstrated a preserved ejection fraction with no segmental wall motion abnormalities. The concern at this point was that her graft went down, which is interesting because usually when that happens, patients are asymptomatic. She was taken to the cath lab and underwent coronary angiography, and no patent SVG was visualized on attempted selective angiography or root angiography, indicating occlusion of her vein graft. Her RCA was noted to be large and patent, providing brisk collateral filling of the left coronary circulation. Interestingly, there was a hazy opacity and possible thrombus in the LAD near the touchdown site of the vein graft, which was difficult to visualize as it opacified late via collaterals, but it may have indicated that there was some thrombotic occlusion and some obstruction of flow in the LAD territory. After significant discussion about how to proceed, 
Ultimately, medical management was pursued with aspirin, clopidogrel, atorvastatin, and metoprolol. And the thought is even though her graft went down, the fact that her left main was ligated at the pulmonary artery, she should have enough coronary flow from her RCA to supply both territories. So this catches us up to now, but where do we go from here? What do we do now? So overall, you guys, this was such a unique presentation given her hyperthyroidism, initial presentation, and then complicated clinical course. For surveillance, the ACC-AHA guidelines recommend that for adult survivors of Alcapa repair, clinical evaluation with echocardiography and non-invasive stress testing is indicated every three to five years, and this is at level C evidence. She's also currently scheduled for follow-up cardiac CT. Usually, patients with anomalous coronary interventions also undergo cross-sectional imaging following surgery to properly assess postoperative anastomoses and also their anatomy. So this is par for the course. She'll also undergo exercise testing, likely a CPET, because despite the fact that her left main is ligated, which would also increase blood flow by itself, if there's resultant ischemia or exertional symptoms, she should be provided with a personalized exercise prescription. Given that her initial presentation was simply brought on by hyperthyroidism, we wonder whether she will have a lower exercise threshold. And and this is very important and definitely a possibility. Thanks so much, Kamara, for talking about her planned follow-up testing. Close follow-up is going to be incredibly important for her over the duration of her lifespan. And certainly counseling on when to present and warning symptoms was a huge part of her pre-discharge discussions. So she was told if she were to have recurrent symptoms, including the chest pain, arm pain, anything that was suggestive of recurrent angina, she should have a very low threshold to seek medical attention just because it's likely to represent perhaps recurrent ischemia. And we would want her to be identified as early as possible, especially given her complex course and now very complex coronary anatomy. Thanks, Rachel, Danny, and Kamar. This was simply just a phenomenal case. I learned so much from all of you, and especially of not only the diagnosis, but how to think through a young person presenting with chest discomfort with the qualifier in that we are now thinking through this in the lens of COVID-19. And there was just so much to learn here and such a rich discussion. You know, I want to ask you guys, because you just gave such a wonderful presentation and demonstrated what's so wonderful about cardiology, why you all chose cardiology and what makes your heart flutter about training at MGH? Thanks, Karan. Cardiology is something I've loved for as long as I can remember. And I remember the decision to go into cardiology was during a college exam. There was a question about pressure and volume and time was a loop in the middle of the graph. I don't remember the specifics, but I remember walking out of that test and saying, wow, cardiology is so cool. I just couldn't get over how the relationship of pressure, volume, hemodynamics, electricity. I just think it's such an amazing field and I still love it every day and I love going to work. What I love about training at MGH are really the people. I'm surrounded by amazing co-fellows. I'm surrounded by amazing supportive leaders. They respond to feedback. They really invest themselves in both our training and our personal lives, and they make it such a wonderful environment to learn about complex cases such as this one. Thanks, Danny. For me, cardiology was quite a visceral decision. Um, I remember growing up in Jamaica and having family members who had heart disease, not having access to care, and 
I was quite interested in their disease processes and how I could actually make a difference in patients' lives. There were quite a number of socioeconomic factors that played into my decision, and the outcomes in certain vulnerable groups was something that I was interested in as well. And from a basic science standpoint, there are several factors that go into uh, a patient's disease process. And for me, if we take cardiac fibrosis, for example, I'm very interested in figuring out what we can do to halt or even reverse cardiac fibrosis in heart failure. So not only did I have a very visceral and personal reason why I chose cardiology, but I think it complements my basic science interests really well. I fell in love with cardiology after doing my medicine rotation and had the opportunity to be on the consult service at my med school. And that love just grew when I rotated through the CCU, which is in part why I'm critical care cardiology bound. I love the intersection of physiology, pathophysiology, and the complexities of multi-system organ failure in a heart-centric universe. My favorite thing about being at MGH is the amazing people. I'm so blessed with the best co-fellows you could possibly ask for, the most supportive leadership team, and the amazing career development that's offered. I think one thing as a female cardiology fellow that is also phenomenal is how supportive our department is of women in cardiology. Rachel, Danny, Kimar, this was such an incredible and fun discussion. What a great day on the Esplanade. I learned so much about Alcapa and a little bit about alpacas and also about the incredible training at MGH. This is just phenomenal. And Danny, your explanation for why you went into cardiology was amongst the nerdiest we've ever heard. So I think it's time to welcome each of you to the Cardinerds family. Thanks, guys. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks for having us, everybody. Thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. And now I'm excited to introduce our illustrious program director, Dr. Deferia Ye, who will provide the eCPR as well as a message to the applicants. She is an adult congenital cardiologist, and she is by far the most supportive program director and most wonderful person that we all have the privilege of training under. She takes pride in all of us as fellows and really cares about our day-to-day life, our education, our career interests, and our goals as people and budding cardiologists. And I look forward to you guys all getting to hear from her about what she has to say about Alcapa and our program at MGH. Amit and Karen, thanks so much to all for putting together such a terrific series of podcasts. I've learned a tremendous amount from these cases, and it's such a joy to hear the clinical reasoning of our fellows who are our future leaders in cardiology. Thanks so much to Rachel, Kamar, and Danny for presenting this very unique case, and to Danny for such a kind and wonderful introduction. I appreciate you inviting me. My name is Doreen DeFaria-Ye, and I'm an adult congenital heart disease specialist at Mass General Hospital. I co-direct our cardiovascular disease and pregnancy program here, but my favorite job is directing the MGH Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship Program. There's nothing more gratifying than being part of the lives of such extraordinary people, both professionally and personally. It's a huge responsibility that I love and our educational leadership team here at MGH and I take very seriously. This case and this patient are very close to my heart. I was called to see her in consultation shortly after the diagnosis of Alcapa was made. And even in a busy ACHD clinic, a new diagnosis of Alcapa in an adult is still not a common situation. 
There are many important clinical concepts and pearls which have been so nicely delineated by Rachel, Danny, and Kamar. Like any congenital condition, the anatomy and physiology of anomalous coronaries can be quite variable. You may have run across anomalous coronary arteries in the cath lab, on the consult service, or on your imaging rotation. Benign variants of anomalous coronary arteries, like retroaortic circumflex arteries, are most common and should not require any intervention unless advanced atherosclerotic disease is present. Anomalous coronary arteries from the opposite sinus of Valsalva are also seen in adults, with anomalous right coronary arteries from the left cusp being more common than left coronary arteries from the right cusp. And the approach to management truly must be individualized pending the presentation, the patient's age, anatomic features, and artery dominance. Some anomalous right coronary arteries are incidentally picked up in older adults, while others with longer intramural proximal courses may predispose to adverse events such as myocardial infarction or arrhythmia. Anomalous left main coronary arteries from the right sinus of Valsalva may have a benign intraseptal course or have a malignant intramural course where the proximal segment is hypoplastic predisposing to a higher risk of sudden death and arrhythmias. So distinguishing these anatomic details is of critical importance. Al-kappa and R-kappa, which stands for anomalous right coronary artery from the pulmonary artery, are of course quite rare and particularly rare as a new presentation in adulthood. Importantly, all variants of coronary anomalies are unique. So sitting with your congenital heart radiologist and your congenital echocardiographer is really critical to understanding the nuances of the anatomy. This is an important part of understanding the disease and helping to make the right decision for these patients. Now, Rachel, Danny, and Kamar so carefully detailed the unique physiology of Alcapa that changes based on pulmonary vascular pressure and resistance with circulation in this adult patient highly dependent on a huge right coronary artery collateral vessel system and the steel phenomenon of retrograde left coronary flow into the pulmonary artery. So you're probably asking, so why now is ischemia a problem when this anatomy hasn't changed in decades? This case really highlights how normal physiologic changes, like what might occur in the time of physiologic stressors that could be normally tolerated by any normal heart, may lead to trouble at a much lower threshold in congenitally abnormal hearts, whether that trouble be ischemia, arrhythmia, or heart failure. This is an important concept in congenital heart disease that we talk about on a daily basis. So I met this patient just shortly after the diagnosis of Alcapa was made by cardiac CT. I came to meet her on the 11th floor. I remember putting on my PPE as we were in the midst of the surge, the COVID pandemic, and I sat down to learn a little bit about her. And I realized that she was born on the same island that my parents were born on in Cape Verde, an economically disadvantaged country with very limited medical resources. And although her English was very good, it clearly seemed more comfortable for her to share her story with me in Cape Verdean Creole. And she shared with me the symptoms in her own language. She told me a little bit about what it felt like when she had these symptoms. And she said, which literally translates to, I have this anxiety or this worry in my chest. But this was the same phrase that I remember both my father and my aunt using when they presented with angina before bypass surgery. They never really used the word pain in their chest, but they described it as just this very unsettling discomfort that was so um, severe, it really felt very worrisome, like a worrisome feeling, and thus the literal translation. 
It seemed fairly clear to me at that point why some of her symptoms had been prematurely attributed to anxiety, given the literal translation, and given that at her young age, there was a very low probability of obstructive coronary atherosclerosis. As our conversation evolved, she also shared with me that she had a history of domestic violence, which only reinforced her belief that these exertional chest symptoms were anxiety. Being able to hear her story in her native language provided tremendous insight and highlighted the importance of how much of what patients share with us could potentially get lost or misidentified in translation. This also amplifies a critical need to diversify our cardiovascular workforce to better care for vulnerable populations, like those where English is not their first language. I appreciate your questions and discussion about her pregnancy history, given the important implications for cardiovascular risk in the future. Reviewing obstetrical history really needs to be a routine part of all of our cardiovascular assessments for every woman. One thing we did not discuss is what is her risk for subsequent pregnancy now that she is presented with an acute coronary syndrome. So you won't find much data on pregnancy risk in adults with recently repaired Alcapa. Generally, among patients with well-repaired Alcapa, pregnancy is generally well-tolerated. But importantly, you have to remember this myocardium is abnormal, and the myocardium may be susceptible to dysfunction in the context of the physiologic volume load of pregnancy and physiologic stressors of pregnancy. I discussed with her potential risks, and she shared with me she actually was hoping to have another child in the future. So we advised against a pregnancy in the near term until she had recovered fully from her cardiac surgery, and we felt comfortable that she could exercise at a high level without ischemia. In the interim, we had conversations about durable contraception, and we discussed an IUD, which can be removed later when a pregnancy is desired and safe to pursue. Discussion of contraception with women who are at increased cardiovascular risk is really an important responsibility of the cardiologist, of course, in collaboration with the patient's OBGYN, but reminding patients that cardiovascular complications are one of the leading causes of maternal morbidity and mortality. Finally, this case highlights the importance of careful review of primary data. As her wall motion abnormality on the initial echo was quite subtle, I really applaud our fellows for looking carefully and continuing to think about a coronary etiology in this case. The LAD thrombus on her coronary angiogram when she represented was also quite subtle, but seemed to explain why she presented with an acute coronary syndrome in the context of her graft failure. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this case. To our applicants to cardiology, this is a truly challenging virtual season, but there is no better field, in my mind anyway, and maybe I'm highly biased, but there's no better field than cardiology. And I wish you all the best in your journey and certainly know that you'll make the right decision for you. Fellowship is a truly transformative time in your careers. Seek out programs that will challenge and support you and expand your current framework of how you think about cardiology. Look for programs where you feel you can trust and lean on your co-fellows like they're your close friends or family because really they will be some of your closest friends one day. And feel confident that the leadership not only your program director, but also the division chief, make it clear that the career interests and needs of the fellows are an important priority. I feel very fortunate to work with such incredible people like our fellows at MGH. They teach me far more than they realize, and I hope I can teach them something along the way. Many thanks again for a truly remarkable presentation. Thank you to Amit and Karen again for the energy that you put into Cardio Nerds. And full disclosure, I've never personally seen an alpaca. 
Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardioNerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Rizzo for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.